Wow, what an introduction. <laughs> Hope I can live up to it, but all I've got to bring to you is my experience, strength, and hope. My name is Glenda Lee, and I am a grateful recovering member of Al-Anon. My home group is the Bay Village Columbia Road Discussion Group at uh, 8 o'clock in Bay Village, Ohio, on Mondays. And I will bring back some of this wonderful enthusiasm and spiritualism that I'm absorbing this weekend to chair my meeting on Monday, because that's what we do. We step up and we take responsibility for some of the things that have to be done within our groups. Uh, I'm going to just share with you my background. Uh, If you don't know where I've been or whence I come from, you can't appreciate uh, how I've aged through this whole process matured through this whole process. Your theme is growing. I'm going to tie that into some of that I have to say, too, because I'm an avid gardener. I enjoyed the drive down here. It was good six and a half hours, but I enjoyed it because I watched the the world come alive. The trees came into blossom. The grass was greener. Uh, It was 37 degrees when I left Avon Lake, which is just outside of Cleveland. And when I got down here, it was up in the 50s. It was marvelous. And um, so even the whole trip has been a wonderful experience so far. Then I come into the rooms and I see some familiar faces, people that I've met through the years. Uh, Juanita and Bob, I don't think it's been at least 15 years since I've seen them. But such a joy. They haven't changed a bit. You haven't aged a bit. (laughs) Just want you to know how, how much I appreciate you. Um, I was raised in an alcoholic family. I am the eldest of three children, and I was a candidate from this program for the first few breaths I probably took. I have one of those Al-Anon memories. I don't forget a great deal. Um, I no longer experience the pain of some of the things I don't forget, but I, I do remember, and I can go back in my own childhood to being four, five years old, and on a Christmas Eve, uh, pouring a bottle of whiskey down the drain. I think it was Canadian Club, too, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, So that my daddy wouldn't drink. Because when my daddy drank, he was not a nice man. And I, being the oldest, was always, quote, in charge of my brother, my sister, and my brother. I have a sister that's three years younger than I am, and I have a brother that's eight years younger than I am. Um, Growing up in this home, I have a memory of my father at some time, maybe in the early 40s. My dad didn't drink. Now, I might have been seven, eight years old at this time. And I remember taking walks with him, and we'd go get malted milks. I remember this is a very, very happy time in my life. Something happened. My dad drank again. I remember moving and our family being separated uh, in the late 40s when the uh, Second World War was over and the GIs come back and bought homes. And we had rented a home, and my dad was a construction worker. And uh, we'd never really put our roots down anywhere. And we uh, had to move, and my sister and I were boarded out. My mother had just had my baby brother. And we went to live with a family out in Avon, Ohio, And uh, my sister and I talk about these things every once in a while. Uh, The family that had us would take us and park us in a parking lot at a local winery in Westlake, Ohio. And we'd sit in the car while they went in and drank. We never seemed to get away from that pattern of alcohol in our lives. My parents finally bought a home in Avon Lake, Ohio. And I moved to Avon Lake when I was 10 years old. And Avon Lake is a little farming community at that time. And it sits 17 miles west of Cleveland, right on Lake Erie. And I started the seventh grade there. My parents bought this little summer cottage, and we moved in. Uh, It even had an outhouse then. I mean, so you know how primitive we were. And uh, my father, being a construction worker, brought home a good paycheck. But I remember every weekend... My dad never missed a day's work, but he turned from a Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde. He was the meanest, nastiest, filthiest-mouthed man when he drank. 
Now, I grew up not talking about this. Uh, you hit your junior high school years, and you'd go to school, and the teachers would say, well, you had all weekend to get your homework done. They didn't know what went in on my home on a weekend, and I surely wasn't going to tell them because I was ashamed. Didn't talk about those kind of things. You kept it in your house. I also, at that time, very early on, learned to answer a telephone, say that my mother wasn't there or my father wasn't home uh, because it were usually bill collectors calling. I learned early on to cover things up, and the, the key word was don't tell daddy. Because if you tell daddy, you're going to upset him, there's going to be more stuff going on in this house. So you just kept your mouth shut about anything that happened that might upset daddy because then daddy might drink, right? Okay. Uh, to say that I was uh, rebellious when I was growing up, when I got into my teenage years, would probably be putting it mildly. Uh, my sister was an overachiever. She became the goody two-shoes, excelled at cheerleading, school, everything. I went the other way. When I was 15 years old, I was put in a home for Catholics, uh, for girls, wayward girls. It was run by Catholic nuns. It was one of the most... Uh, exhilarating experiences of my life because I had unstructured discipline. Those nuns were just fantastic to me. And I'll tell you, uh, I was there for a year, and I came back home when I was 16 and entered my uh, senior year of high school. During that year, I learned that I was smart, uh, more manipulative than I thought I was because I, I was able to con my way and become this leader in the community and I had the keys because we were under lock and key. It wasn't you just come and go as you want. Um, but I had this structure in my life and when I left there, one of the nuns, Mother Bernard, handed me a beautiful, beautiful card and on it, it was full of gardens. It, it was that your, your life will be a garden of experience. And uh, believe it or not, I still have that card today. And I'm now 70, well, 76 years old, coming up this year. So I was 16 years old, and I stuck that card away. Great keeper of mementos also. Um, came home and had... Achieved enough to be accepted into the School of Nursing at Old City Hospital in Cleveland, which is now Metro. Went in there, but came home on weekends because, you know, I still had this father that drank. I still had this mother that I had to protect. Still had this brother and sister that I had to watch over. And one of those weekends, I was home. Now, I always caution everybody. You know, we write our own history. And when you look back on it, wow, wow. Uh, <laughs> Some of it you might have wanted to change. But uh, my grandchildren gave me a book. It was called The Grandmother's Book of Memories. And in that book of memories was How Did Grandma Meet Grandpa? Well, guys, Grandma was hitchhiking, and Grandpa picked her up. <laughs> so <laughs> I, can't, I can't make it. It's the truth. I can't change that. That's how, that's how it happened. Uh, I missed a bus, and uh, I was with two other girls, and we were on our way into Cleveland for a night out. It was the weekend, and uh, there was no way to get there. We didn't drive. We didn't have cars. So I got out in the middle of the road and stuck out my thumb, and I said, the screecher breaks, this car stopped, and this, oh, this absolutely most handsome guy said, get in, girls. And I said, and he happened, he happened to be wearing my favorite perfume, which was juicy fruit gum and beer what a mixture you know it's like ah. you know they got all that polo stuff and out in the counters today and all that axe and stuff nothing compared to juicy fruit and beer anyhow uh, real turn on so I, he dropped us off he took us into town and he took my name and address and my friend's name and address and uh and i did invite him to dinner now my mother was an excellent cook and uh, we didn't have much of a home but what we had, she took good care of. And um, he called me, and he, I invited him for dinner. And, of course, all relationships probably start on a devious note where you want that person to see you as you want 
them to see you. So my mother cooked his dinner, and as he came up the driveway, I yelled, quick, tie the apron on me. I want him to think I cooked this. <laughs> I was going to be setting this little trap in my head because this guy was really different. He talked with a Brooklyn accent. He talked kind of charming, had a DA haircut. He had just gotten a divorce. I knew my father was going to love him. Uh, and uh, that was a little shortly before Thanksgiving of 1953. And to make a long story short, my father met Tom. His reaction was exactly what I thought it would be. He didn't like him. They went out to a know, get to know each other by drinking together, and they had a fight. They got into a big fight. My father told him not to come near me again. So, of course, we eloped. Uh, less than six weeks after I met him, we eloped. And we were going to run away and go to New York and start our lives over. Well, it ended up that he did have a job at that time, and he lost the job. He also had brought a uh, young, newly born son into my life at that time. And... Uh, so I stayed back in Ohio. He went out looking for a job, and uh, he came back. He couldn't get a job. My father said to him, well, being in construction, I will take you in, and I'll get you started in a pipe fitter apprenticeship in Cleveland. And when you guys get on your feet, you can buy a home and live, quote, happily ever after. Well, see, I had this fantasy life. My life was not going to be like my mother and dad's. My life was going to be different. I will also tell you at this time, that I was 18 when I got married. I had turned 18 the end of October, and I was married the end of December. So it was a really grown-up, mature person that went into this to begin with. <laughs> I was also the old maid in my family. My sister married on the day after her 17th birthday, and my brother married at 16. And this was all to escape this home. I grew up kind of blaming my mother sometimes for why my dad drank. You know, my, even my mother, if my mother kept the house neater, my father wouldn't drink. Maybe if my mother did this, maybe if my mother didn't argue with my father, he wouldn't get so nasty. At that time, I did a lot of blaming, which we do. Uh, blame my father's friends that he drank with. You're always looking for somebody to blame this behavior. No idea that there was something called alcoholism that changed people's behavior and who they were. Um, well, I went out and got my own alcoholic. And uh, we moved into this new... Uh, my dad had just built a two-car garage in the back of our home, and we remodeled it. We made it into our little honeymoon cottage, the bedroom, a little space heater, a little living room, a little kitchen in it. And I was going to set out to be the wonderful housewife. Well... A year after we were married, our first son, Chris, was born. So I now had Tommy and Chris. And the boys were like 13 months apart, actually, in age, 14 months apart in age. Uh, so here I am, a young woman, uh, 19 years old, with two children. And uh, a husband that I couldn't figure out why he would be nice sometimes, and other times he wouldn't. See, I didn't have a guy that drank at home. I had a guy that drank away from home. We'd go out together. My mother would watch the kids. We'd go out for a night out. I'd, I'd do something during the night that caused him to get mad. And uh, he'd bring me home, dump me in the driveway, and he'd leave. And sometimes he'd be gone for a couple hours, and he'd come back drunk. And sometimes he'd be gone for a couple days, and he'd come back drunk. And when he come back drunk, I'd be trying to figure out what I did to make him drink. What, what happened? And I'd try to change that. Uh, I tried to be the perfect, perfect person, but nothing that I did changed his behavior. Well, then I became the unperfect person. I became this mean, vicious, nasty, whining, crying woman. And uh, that didn't change his behavior. I cried a lot. I was in hysterics a lot. That didn't change his behavior. Uh, we separated after uh, the one, the first boy was born, my first child was born. And uh, we were separated for a little while, and uh, he'd come out to make up. And of course, all I wanted him to do was stop drinking, and he had stopped drinking. 
And he came out to make up, and of course, I got pregnant again. So uh, on my 20th birthday, my third son was born. And uh, I will tell you that between that pregnancy and his birth, I really contemplated aborting him. I tried something to abort him because I, when I found I was pregnant, I was absolutely despondent. Didn't know how the heck I was going to take care of these children and with this unreliable person in my life. That I felt ashamed for loving. It was something very wrong with me because I loved somebody who treated me like this. Uh, thank God what I tried to do didn't work, and I have a three lovely young men in my life today. Uh, so after Craig was born, uh, Tom and I were going to start over, and we took the geographic cure. We moved out of Avon Lake. We moved into Cleveland to be further away from my parents, who actually helped us, but, you know, we're going to get away from people that are interfering in our lives, the alcoholic thinking. So we left, uh, we left Avon Lake. We moved far away into Cleveland, Ohio, which was like, you know, it was 20 miles away. But we were on our own and uh, struggling. He was still in his apprenticeship, and uh, we were going to start over again. We were always going to start over again. It's going to be a fresh start because he wasn't drinking for the moment. For the moment. No program. Uh, got into town after this reconciliation that we uh, put together, and uh, I found out that he had been unfaithful to me during the time we were separated. And I was heartbroken. Uh, because I was being the, quote, good mother and the jilted wife and full of martyrdom and uh, pity, self-pity for myself. And when I found out that Tom had been unfaithful to me, well, I set out my usual pattern of things, which was my self-destructive pattern that I had carried from the time I was a teenager. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you by hurting me, which makes a lot of sense, but that's where I was at that point in my life. So when I found out that this husband of mine had done this dastardly deed to me, I set out to get even. And I think at that time, short shorts and white boots were in. And, um, and being the mature person I was, I set out to find a man and break his heart, too. So I went down to a very raunchy section of town in Cleveland, sat on a bar stool, and this fellow walked over to me. And, you know, you've got to go back... 40 years here, guys, or at least, at least 40 years. But the fellow came over, and he leaned over, and he said, Can I buy you a drink there, honey? I, of course. Oh, my God, my husband's been unfaithful to me. I'm just going <laughs> This poor man just you know, recoiled back. And, you know, and after I went on and on and on, and how I didn't really want to be there, but he deserved to be hurt, and all that, I just, you know, babbled on. Well, this fellow said to me, You know what? little lady, I'm going to take you home, and I'm going to drop you at the corner of your street. He says, and you get your butt home, and you work out your own problems. And he says, and do me a favor, don't ever come down here and spoil some other guys one night out. <laughs> so, you know, that didn't work for me either. Uh, I, spent, um, I spent a lot of time planning my husband's death. Uh, it was, and I, I gave it a lot of thought because I would stand in front of a mirror and practice my expression. You know, you had to look. If you if you are going to, you know, act like this was an accident, I had it all. We moved back out to Avon Lake. There was a railroad track about two miles south of us, and he always fell asleep in the car. He'd maybe get as far as the car and he'd fall asleep in the car. So I was going to push him. I was going to drive him down the railroad tracks park the car, run home. Then when they came to tell me that a train had hit him and killed him. But I had to look like I was shocked. So I'd stand in front of the mirror and I'd practice. How would you look if somebody told you your husband had been killed? I'd try to get that, oh, you know, falling apart look like I was shocked. And, and I really, when I think about it, in all seriousness, I really did this. It was like, and the time... I wasted with the most important and most precious people in my life, which was my children. I was too busy plotting and figuring out how to beat this man or how to kill him to enjoy my family and my circumstances as they were. 
Um, my mother said we should have had a, a little revolving door in this cottage that we lived in because I was constantly throwing him out, taking him back. I didn't want him to leave. I didn't want to be without him. All I wanted him to do was do what I wanted him to do, which was quit drinking and be a father and grow up and be mature. Okay. Progression. Uh, Tom's drinking, of course, kept up. And, of course, we went lower and lower on the scale and a lot of debt, a lot of frustration in our lives. Um, we bought a little house on land contract because we had no credit. Um, we were just financially bankrupt as well as spiritually and emotionally bankrupt. But we were going to buy this house and try to build something out of it. And uh, it had no foundation on it. But it was a summer cottage, and it was within the, a price that we could beg, borrow, and steal the money to get a down payment down. And it was on land contract. And land contract is if you don't make a payment, you lose the house. I mean, it goes back to the original property owner. So we moved in with all this knowledge in our heads. Uh, meanwhile, my sister had gotten married. And who did she marry? Well, she married one of Tom's friends. And what do Tom's friends do? They drink because they're friends of my husband's. So my sister is married to a fellow who is a friend of my husband's. And the sisters are trying to figure out how to keep them from getting together to drink because every time they got together, one influenced the other, and they'd take off drinking. And we never knew where they were going to be or what they were going to do. So we buy this little house in Avon Lake, and my sister at that time had lived in the same neighborhood, and uh, she and I had both talked to a lawyer about a divorce. And we didn't have pots to hiss in, believe me, neither one of us. My sister had uh, four kids, and I at that time had the three. And uh, we were going to get a divorce, but our friend who was a lawyer said, well, girls, I'll give you, you scrape together the money for one divorce, and I will give you two divorces for the price of one. <laughs> that way I can work on both of them at the same time, and you can get rid of the, both of the losers at the same time. So this was our plan of action. Uh, we had our little house, she had her little house, and my brother-in-law came up and he informed my husband that I, he had gotten his papers for divorce. Well, see, Tom, when we bought this house, promised me he wouldn't drink anymore. And once again, I believed him. And once again, he lied to me. And once again, he used me. And I was ready to let go this time for good. Uh, I didn't get in the little fact that during, uh, after this brief reconciliation that we did in Cleveland, uh, we also conceived another baby. So that would have been baby number four. And that baby uh, was a little girl uh, with absolutely the most gorgeous black hair and dark blue eyes, and she was our princess. And, of course, I remember him putting his hand on her head at that time, and once more the vow, this baby will never see her daddy drunk, and it didn't take long until that baby was crawling over her drunken father, laying on the floor. So I was a very bitter, angry young woman. And when my brother-in-law approached my husband about going to an AA meeting, he'd heard about something, and I said to him, you know, Bob, I know about this. I talked to a minister in town. I always liked my brother-in-law because he wasn't as bad of a drunk as my husband. You know, you compare drunkards to now, you know, mine isn't as bad as yours. You've really got it bad. But so I was more of a martyr, and I really had it much worse than my sister. But I told my brother-in-law about this meeting that I heard about, that if he went to it, uh, maybe he could get some help. And my husband volunteered to go, and I really didn't care if he went or not. It didn't matter to me one way or another. The guys went to that meeting. Uh, within that week, I got a phone call from a woman. And she said, uh, we're starting a new meeting here in Avon Lake. It would be the first meeting in Lorraine County. It was in 1960. And uh, it's an Al-Anon meeting, and it's for the families of alcoholics. And I would like for you to come, because my husband is going to sponsor your husband. And I would like you to come to this Al-Anon meeting. So I went to the Al-Anon meeting because I didn't want anybody to think that I wasn't a supportive, kind, loving person, which I wasn't. Uh, 
So I went to the meetings, and I sat at the meetings, and Jerry, Jerry tried very hard, quote, to sponsor me. She'd call me in the mornings to find out how I was doing. And I was so busy because somebody had to do something. He didn't do anything. And all the, all the responsibility for the house and the yard and everything and the kids was dumped on me. And I just didn't have time to talk to this woman. I didn't want her inquiring how I was doing because I would tell her that I was carrying the whole load. And uh, that's where I was at that point in life. I went to the meetings and... Uh, just didn't sink in that this could be for me. I went to find out how to keep him sober and for him to have his agenda line up with my agenda for our lives. About three months into his sobriety, uh, and by the way, my brother-in-law decided he did not need it, and he walked away from it. Uh, About three months into Tom's sobriety, he had a chance to go and make some money, some really big-time stuff booming out in South uh, Dakota. And his sponsor called me and said, uh, Glenda Lee, don't let him go. You kids, because we were kids, uh, are just getting your feet wet in this program. And money is not the buy-all and the cure for everything. And I thought, what do you know, you old coot? You've got everything. You know, somebody 40 at that time was old to me. Uh, what, what, you know, what are you talking about? He's got to make up now for all he did. Because, see, the pattern in my life was the pattern that I grew up with. When you hurt somebody, then you had to make it up to them. My father, the alcoholic, was so full of guilt and remorse after his binges that we were bought everything that money could buy, even if they couldn't afford it. My dad would go out and get it for us. Remorse and guilt. I brought that thinking into my marriage. You have to show me that you love me by buying me things, quote, that we can't afford, but you have to prove that you love me. So this is the mentality I brought into this, this whole marriage that we entered. We were in so much debt by the time Tom came into AA that we finally dis- we declared bankruptcy. We couldn't call, climb out. We had five finance companies guaranteeing his wages, We'd go out and get the next loan to pay out this, off this loan, and we'd never pay it off, and we'd get another loan, and it just snowballed. I guess like people do with credit cards and stuff today. But that's where we were. So when Tom came into AA, I thought, okay, now it's payoff time for me. You're sober. I want what's due me and these kids. So with my encouragement, my husband left his three-month-old program, of AA, and he went out to South Dakota. He called me shortly afterwards and asked me to come out. He had a place for the kids and I, and uh, I waited till school was out in June, and I took off to go to South Dakota. When I got out there, of course, I'd never looked up an Al-Anon group. My husband wasn't drinking, and I didn't need the Al-Anon anymore. Tom, unbeknownst to me, had started to drink when I got out to South Dakota, So when I arrived, I walked into the same alcoholic situation I had always had in my life. But this time I'm isolated. I'm 10 miles out from the city of Sturgis. I am one mile off the highway from that point. Uh, And he's out drinking. And he's gone for three, four days at a time. When he does come back, he's drunk. I'm trying to get the kids back into school. It was the fall of the year. I had a mini spiritual awakening. Uh, I got a phone call that he was in uh, jail in Sturgis, and would I come get him? Well, you know, I waited for this opportunity because I was going to go in and I was going to tell him what an SOB, and believe me, it wasn't sick on booze in my mind at that time. <laughs> he was all, you know, just because just I had a vicious tongue, sarcastic, filthy mouth. You name it, I was nasty, I was bitter, I was angry, I was hurt. I jumped in the car, left four kids alone in a farmhouse, figuring at the most it's going to take me an hour to get into town and back. And on that time I'd be able to tell him what I thought of him and how he'd ruined my life and the kid's life and on and on and on. I planned this whole thing. Off I go. 
And one of the snowstorms came out of the mountains, and uh, my car went off the road, and I got out of the car, and the minute I touched, lost contact with the front fender of that car, I was snowblind, rolled down in a gully. I remember crawling out, and crawling on the road, and saying, oh my God, I'm going to die, and my kids are alone in a farmhouse. Nobody knows that. He's in jail. I'm out here in my, in my vicious anger. Thank God, a, uh, and we do have to thank something, providence, divine intervention, whatever, that came in and two fellas were driving by in a fuel oil truck and they found me crawling down the middle of the road. They could have hit me just as well as found me, but they found me. Pulled me in, scraped the snow off my face, took me into town so they could not turn around, the roads were impassable. But I had to find somebody, and we did have friends in town that brought me back out to the farmhouse. I, at that moment, realized what my viciousness, my anger, my hatred for both of us, not just him, myself too, had turned me into. I packed up shortly after that and left Tom Burns. When I left him, I could have looked through him like that exit sign. He meant nothing to me anymore. I had put up such a, a wall that I would not love, I would not permit love to come into my life anymore. Took the four kids and headed back home to Cleveland. Got back home and a few months later, uh, he knocked at the back door. I told him I didn't want the kids to see him. And you know why I didn't want the kids to see him? Because the kids would call him daddy and the kids would still love him. And I was the hero, not him told him to keep going. I didn't want him in my life. Well, he got into New York, and he got a job, or a temporary job or something, and he called me, and he said he needed to come home, that he needed to get back into Cleveland. Well, my mind started to work again, being the mean, manipulative, calculating woman that I had turned into at that time in my life. I said, now I entered my stage of prostitution. And prostitution is when you sleep with somebody, you have no feeling for them, but you accept their paycheck. And that's the point I was at. Uh, yes, you can come home, and uh, I'll take your paycheck if you can get a job. So we came back home. He was home maybe three or four days, and that was in July of 1962. And... Uh, I remember being pinned up against the wall, and the police coming, and Tom Burns was put in jail. And Tom Burns got out of jail the next day. And my brother-in-law, who had rejected AA, came and got my husband to go to an AA meeting. And once again, Jerry called me. And uh, I still was in the state of mind, yes, I'll go, because I have to figure out to keep him sober as long as he's gone back to this. But I didn't love him, I didn't care about him, and I could care less about him at all. Uh, I went back to Al-Anon and started to have some of it seep into my, into my mind, but I still couldn't let go of my anger and my need to prove a point and my need to uh, make him suffer. Uh, they told you, you know, let go of the past. How could you let go of the past? It's in your mind. How can you forget that stuff? It's impossible. Well, I didn't know that in Al-Anon I can learn to remember, but not remember with the pain and the hatred and the bitterness that I, at that time, was experiencing in my life. I didn't know I could let go of that. I thought that was part of me. Um, went to the meetings, and Tom maybe seven, eight months into his sobriety this time, he was changing. And the kids were calling him daddy, and the kids were loving him again. And, and I was full of envy and jealousy, and I'd go to the meetings, and I'd see people that were uh, successful. They had things. No, we had nothing. Our kids were sleeping on mattresses on the floor. Uh, we were lucky we had one car that... I got $20 a week for groceries. It was, it was hard times, hard times. And I'd see these people that were successful, and I would be so full of jealousy and envy that it would just eat me up, and I'd think, some, someday. But I think my mantra really was never, 
We will never have anything. We will never be happy. Our lives will never be like these other people's lives. Um, I could not see any future. All I could see was never. Seven months into Tom's program, as I told you, he had changed. And uh, we had started to fix this little cottage up. And he had started to hand dig a basement underneath this little cottage and cribbed it up. And I had a basement now that I could walk down into and uh, do my laundry. And I was coming up the stairway with open two-by-fours. Anybody that's ever remodeled a house or rebuilt a house knows you have lots of open two-by-fours in it. And when I got to the top of the stairway, I looked down, and my hand was bleeding. I had punched every two-by-four coming up that stairway with such anger, resentment, bitterness. I can't tell you the state I was in over him being so happy and me being so miserable. And um, I finally sank to my knees and I said, oh, God, I, I am sick. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. See, I wanted him to be responsible for my happiness. I didn't know that I could take responsibility for my happiness. I didn't know I had choices. Uh, I was not aware of any of this, and I certainly wasn't aware of the disease of alcoholism. Little by little, we started to put our lives back together. I started to go to the meetings and really tried the simplest thing. It was like in that Just for Today pamphlet. Just for today, I can be pleasant. I can talk. I can be kind to my husband. Uh, I didn't know I could do that. I thought I had to hold all that bitterness and that resentment. I didn't know I had a choice to let that go. Um, little by little, uh, Jerry guided me back. I will be forever grateful for, to her. She eventually divorced her husband and told me she never wanted anything to do with alcoholism or Al-Anon again. Um, I think she missed a great adventure. And I often wonder what happened to her. But she was my first sponsor. Uh, Tom and I eventually started to um, get a few things together, our lives together. Uh, we started to communicate a little bit and talk without fighting and arguing. Uh, it took a long time for that trust, respect, and love to come back into our lives. But little by little, one day at a time, it has. Uh, what I thought was hopeless at that time, today is happiness. Uh, today is contentment. It's not that life has not been, quote, without its thorns. Today's reading, I don't, I, I don't know if anybody read their One Day at a Time book today, but the reading for today talks about thorns and the things that come into your life, along with the roses. Um, we built our lives back and uh, raised our family. Kids got into high school. Boys will be boys, right? Boys drink. At that time, you could drink, um, 18, you could drink three, two beer. So our boys were high school football players, and after the games, they'd go out and have a few beers. Well, one of our boys, I think, might have started carrying it to excess even then, uh, our middle son, Chris. And he'd come in at night, quiet, never said two words. Boy, when he drank, he'd be in on Mom's bed, sitting there at night talking. And, and then I had this thing where they had to kiss me goodnight so I could smell their breath to find out if they were drinking or not. You know, <laughs> usual, usual mom tricks. And uh, yes, Chris had definitely had an alcoholic problem. And uh, he married a beautiful local girl, and they settled close by us, and I watched his life slowly disintegrate. He went to work with his dad as a pipe fitter. Uh, they had a little business, and Chris wouldn't show up some days, and Tom would be a raving maniac. He didn't have Alan on. And, uh, and I remember one night, he, uh, we got a phone call. Chris had won some money in a lottery, and he was sitting in a bar drinking, and Tom was going to go down and drag that jerk off the bar stool, and... I said to him, you can't, I'm holding on to him in the living room. Honey, you can't do that. You can't do that. This is going to drive him further away from us. 
but he was in a rage over his son's behavior. I mean, these kids had grown up with AA, and what? They're drinking? He had no connection that this son was like him. This son wasn't showing up for work. Duh, the pattern? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but there he is, um, the father of an alcoholic. Uh, I will tell you that our daughter, uh, when she was 23, made a decision to come into uh, AA. And her decision to come into AA was not because she identified with the drinking pattern of the woman that she heard speak at an AA meeting, because Corrine had gone to AA meetings from the time she was a little girl with her daddy. She was always by his side. And she also had grown up with it. But she too picked up the glass and started to drink. Um, she identified with this woman's emotional pattern, the ups and downs, the total depression of drinking. Uh, I saw this, and I worried about her behavior. I worried about suicide. Uh, she would get so depressed. Uh, we discussed drinking, but I did not criticize drinking. I did not forbid a lot of things. I had a thing, as long as you're living at home, please make a phone call. That's all I want from you. I don't have, no, I have to know your business. Just call me and tell me whether you'll be home at tonight or not. Uh, she was 23 years old, after all. She wasn't a child. Uh, she made the decision to come into AA at 23. Her brother had come to the house and stood in the doorway one day. And Chris is a big man, 6'4", good 240 pounds at that time. Stood in the doorway, put his hand up on the doorway, and was talking to me, and he was so drunk. And I saw in his eyes, I saw the look I used to see in my father's eyes. The lights went on. I am afraid of you. I'm afraid of you the way I was afraid of my father. But I wouldn't back down in fear. I either attacked in fear or I ran. Uh, saw this look in his eyes. And I said to him, uh, Chris, you frighten me. Don't ever come to my house drunk again or I will have you locked up. I don't deserve to be frightened. Now, Chris did not run out and join AA right away. But six months after his sister joined, he also joined. So here we are, this family of 23 years in our programs. Uh, life is good. Kids have found their paths. My son's got his marriage on the right track. Our daughter's got her career on the right track. Our oldest son didn't drink. He's uh, diabetic. Thank goodness he didn't drink. He didn't know it at the time. Our uh, youngest son is the kind of a guy who comes home and has a beer at night. That's the end. Of it. That's the end of it. It's not excessive. It's not, not that pattern at all. So life is good for all of us. And you know, all those things that I thought I'd never have in life, I had them. We had to quote achieved that one day at a time. Now I'll tell you what it means. Uh, we moved our daughter to Florida, and uh, this was 1985, 26 years ago, actually next month. Uh, moved our daughter down to Florida for a very good job she had advertising, got her settled in her apartment, and came home. We weren't home 10 days, and there was a knock at the door, and it was my son's brother-in-law who happened to be a lieutenant on the police department. And uh, he come in, he said, I have to talk to Tom. Well, Tom wasn't there. Tom was out of town. And he said, Glenda Lee, uh, something's happened to Corrine. And I okay, automobile accident, but no, my daughter was dead. My daughter's apartment had been broken into. Uh, details of the crime are unimportant, but our daughter was gone. And... Uh, Everybody was there to support us. Anybody who's ever lost a child knows what it means to have that support from other people. Nobody can take away your pain, but they can be there to support you through that. I went to a couple of Al-Anon meetings afterwards because it's what I had always done. And somebody, you know, the pattern, I have to keep going. I have to keep doing what I've always done. 
And I remember sitting in a meeting one time, and a woman said her daughter had been someplace and gone somewhere and had come home because her prayers had brought her home. And I wanted to get up out of my chair and walk across the room and slap her right across the mouth because my prayers hadn't brought my daughter home. Tom and I went through a, um, a very hard time for about three years. He was consumed with anger, revenge. He still went to his program. He didn't drink, but it was eating him up inside. Uh, I took another bent, kept going with my Al-Anon one day at a time. What can I do to help other people who have gone through? I took another road to my healing and recovery got involved with a a support group for parents of murdered children, Uh, went to work as a volunteer at our local prosecutor's office, all the time watching my husband sink, but knowing that there was nothing I could do to change what was going on with him. Uh, He finally broke. Uh, I come home one day, he was standing in the kitchen, uh, didn't know where he was, what he was doing, uh, and you know the miracles that he, yesterday he talked about uh, how things happened and weren't supposed to happen. I laughingly say in our part of the country, uh, people change addictions. A lot of the guys, when they sober up, then they turn to golf. <laughs> and, uh, and this is what, this is what my family did. Uh, Tom is, is, loves the game of golf, and our son Chris in sobriety found his crew in the golf and stuff. And uh, I knew Chris was at the golf course down the road from us, just down the road. And I pulled in the parking lot, and as I'm pulling in the parking lot, they're walking up to the ninth green. And he saw the car. And he, I got out, and he goes, come over, Mom, what's wrong? I said, your dad needs you, Chris. He's falling apart, and I don't, I, I don't know what to do. And uh, those guys, <laughs> what benevolence of spirit walked off of that, and I don't think they got the rain check. They jumped in their cars, and they left that golf course, and they went down, and they surrounded my husband with the loving arms of AA. And Tom's story is his. He got the help he needed from our son, who at that time had five years of sobriety. And um, being that this is a story of family addiction and family illness, I have to tell you that my Al-Anon program not only helped me heal my relationship with my husband, but it helped me also heal my relationship with my children, who I had great amends to make. Um, we're very close to the boys and to my daughter-in-laws. They're like my daughters. They're not my daughter-in-laws. Uh, it helped me heal my relationship with my father, because now I knew that my dad was a sick man gave me um, the patience and uh, the knowledge and the privilege of taking care of my mother the last three or four years of her life when she moved in with us to realize uh, what, a, what a hero she was, what she put up with in her life, and uh, did it to the best of her ability. And all those resentments that I had carried that for her disappeared. Um, the, the power, the magnificent healing power of this program uh, has carried us into the next generations. Uh, grandsons. Our youngest grandson's 29 years old. A couple of years ago, I was kidding him, and I said, well, your grandfather grew up when he was, started to grow up when he was about 30. <laughs> so uh, Tom had just had a recent health uh, crisis, and uh, uh, he's not to have any salt. I was kidding him. I said, no smoking, no salt. No sex. <laughs> he didn't think it was funny. I, I was trying to compare. I was trying to compare it to the three C's of Al-Anon. We didn't, you know, we didn't cause it. We can't cure it. We can't control it. But he didn't think it was funny. But anyhow, uh, <laughs> that grandson came over and I loaded him up with all the the, the groceries and salty food in the house. And I he, he says to, I said, "Well, Kev, I said you got one more year because he's twenty nine. I said, before, you have to start thinking about some of this. And I said, and I'll give you 10 years before you're going to have to start watching the salt in your food, too. So take these groceries and enjoy them while you can. Uh, grandsons, we have a grandson that's got two years sobriety, family disease. 
Uh, he's found AA. He did not find it through his grandfather, but he knew it was there because he knew his grandfather did not drink and his grandfather was sober in AA. Uh, we're privileged. We've got four little great-grandchildren now. And uh, I was kidding him. I said, I we was talking to my one daughter-in-law, and she said, you'll never believe this, Mom. She says, we found Grant in the bathtub. She says, with the the bottle of M&M's that he, that he stole off the table in the living room with a shower curtain pulled, and he's sitting in the bathtub eating these M&M's. And I said, hmm. I said to my husband, what do you think? <laughs> I am so blessed and so grateful from the sick, and I mean physically sick young woman I was when I was younger. I enjoy magnificent health and energy. Um, that's through Al-Anon. I've learned to let go of things that I can't control. I hope that you see that I've tried to bring the 12 steps into my life. Um, I will tell you that I have, uh, you know, the fourth month, the inventory step, step four. And uh, I explained to somebody, too, that when you do a step five and you're, taking, you're making your amends to people, not everybody has to accept that. I don't have an absolutely perfect life. I have a daughter-in-law that doesn't spoke to me in 10 years. And, you know, this reading today goes about letting a problem go round and round and round in your head. And it finally dawned on me that I don't have to take responsibility for everybody else's behavior. And I've made my amends. I've reached out in every way I can. And if that situation ever chooses to evolve itself, my heart's as open now as it's always been. And um, happy endings, yeah. This is going to help us through all the challenges that these stages of life are going to bring us. I live one day at a time with expectations for a happy future but with the ability, I think, and the tools to face whatever's handed us in life. And I've gotten that from Alanon. My mother said to me, my God, where did you get the patience? And I said, because I was always so impatient, always in a hurry. It's, it's come to me one day at a time, letting go and letting God and doing the best I can now, when I told you I'm going to go home and I'm going to chair my meeting Monday, I will do that because I, that's what I do for the group that I belong to. I also sign myself up for the months of January and December because those are lousy months of the year in northern Ohio. And I figure if I sign myself up for those months, then i got to get off the couch and out of my nice easy chair and go to those meetings. I don't do that for my Al-Anon group. I do that for me because I know me. I need that discipline. I need to make that commitment to my group and to myself that I never let my Al-Anon slide. I am so grateful that I stayed here. I know so many people that come in and walk away because they, oh, they're going to be okay now. But you know, life is, and life is going to happen. And that garden of life, we're going to get a lot of manure at times. And we're going to have to know how to handle it. And if we keep coming and we keep giving, we're going to be okay. Thank you.